in a world when we have CD players and streaming, there's this weird zone in between playing covers of yourself or covers of other people and just being a music box. And I think that in between that are the boundaries where magic can happen. Too many bands are trying to just be the next whatever. We already have a whatever. We don't need the next whatever. That slot's taken. What we need is for you to matter enough for 10 people that they will tell 10 more people. Here we are on the Weird Music Podcast with none other than Seth Godin. So Seth, between your books, blog, podcasts, your workshops, you know, you've got quite a body of work. And, you know, personally, here I was in the middle of the pandemic. I majored in marketing in school and, you know, I had a lot of uncertainty about if I was on the right path in my life or not. And, you know, I stumbled upon Akimbo. For anyone out there listening, Seth's got this great podcast called Akimbo. And man, Seth, your work has lit a fire inside of me to do, as you say, uh, step up and do, do work that matters for people who care. And I want to start this conversation off by kind of stepping in the time machine with you here and going back. Like, I want to know what's lit this fire inside of you that's, you know, catalyzed you having this great, very impactful body of work. And like, can you take me through whatever moments of inspiration you've had in the past, or if there was some kind of wake up call you had in your teens that, you know, have really caused you to be inspired for so long? Well, first, thanks for having me. And um, I, I hate to start by saying that your first question is a trap, but your first question is a trap. It's a trap for two reasons. First of all, that creative people, people who ship the work are somehow special snowflakes who something happened to them that didn't happen to everybody else. I don't think that's true. And so that's why my personal narrative doesn't come up very often in my work because my personal narrative is irrelevant. And the second half of it is this idea that a fire needs to be lit. I think everybody has a fire, but the place we live, the culture, the industrial system puts the fire out. And so it's a more interesting question, I think, to ask, who's putting your fire out? Who's indoctrinating you to believe that even though, since we're talking about music, you can publish all your music tomorrow for free, you're not doing it. Well, who's keeping you from doing that? Because it's not technology, it's the story inside. Mm. Yes, uh, well acquainted with traps and leave it to Seth to sign a spotlight on them. So, you know, we bring up music. Most of the listeners of this podcast are musicians, like band managers, creatives of various forms. And in your work, you touch on how Keller Williams and the Grateful Dead just did so much right with their approach to creating. And I'd love to dive deep into that with you here. Like, sure. in terms of both their approach to music and, and then also marketing, what are some things you admire most about Keller and the Grateful Dead? Well, so they go together. And for people who think that marketing is hyper spinner, getting Andy Warhol to do the cover of your record album, that's not what marketing is. Marketing is the story we tell and the way we tell it, who we're telling it to, the changes we seek to make. So if we start with the dead, which people are more familiar with than Keller, almost no one went to see the Grateful Dead live. Almost less than 2% of the population, to a rounding error, zero. That the Grateful Dead were the number one 
grossing touring band in America year after year after year, and almost no one went. But the people who did go went 10 times. They went 14 times. They went 40 times. That what Jerry and the rest understood is that they didn't need a big audience. They needed a loyal audience. They also understood that their future wasn't in scarcity, it was in abundance. That their job was to connect and to create an environment for their tribe, for this group of people, and the dead were just narrating it. And so the reason you let people tape is not because it's some complicated bank shot that's gonna help you sell records. You let people tape because as Tim O'Reilly says, your enemy isn't piracy or free, your enemy is obscurity. But once you have this group of people who need you, who want you, who are connected because you're the center of their cultural universe, everything else takes care of itself. And all the people who are seeking scarcity, that's old, that doesn't work. And you know the number of top 40 hits the dead had was one. And in fact, Touch of Grey almost wrecked everything for everyone in the tribe because it brought a whole new group of people to the concerts. And that's when they got too violent and drug-filled. Before that, it was family. And you know what Keller has done at a much smaller but really important level is kept that fire burning, right? So that Keller is accessible. Keller shows up, you know, the, the second time I think, saw him, I think there must've been 800 people in the room. And he was playing like there were 8,000 people in the room. And his ability to be specific, to be meaningful, to stand for something. Too many bands are trying to just be the next whatever. We already have a whatever. We don't need the next whatever. That slot's taken. What we need is for you to matter enough for 10 people that they will tell 10 more people. So like today's music business landscape, you know, so much has changed from those days that we're referring to now at the dead, like COVID's disrupted touring, Spotify's disrupted album sales. And my next question, let's say like your niece or, or a hypothetical daughter of yours were asking for your advice on pursuing music as a career and not just as a hobby. Um, you know, in addition to what you've already said, what advice could you give them on how to achieve some sort of financial success as a musician? There really isn't a music business anymore. There is the uh, souvenirs associated with the legacy of, you know, all the people that I grew up with. There are the people who win the lottery on TikTok or Spotify. But for it to be a business, there needs to be assets, there needs to be a path forward, there needs to be reasonable wages, there needs to be an approach. And it's not really there. I would say to somebody who wants to make a living, go figure out how to make a living. And I would say to someone who has no choice but to make music, just make music and don't worry about the business part. <clears throat> if you figure out how to truly make music and support yourself some other way, you are way more likely to succeed financially than if you say, how do I make music and get paid for it? So when I read your books and I listen to Akimbo, I feel like you're just so tuned in to, to what needs to be said on a given matter and needs to be said is in quotations here. But so on this podcast, we talk a lot about consistencies between improvisational music and meditation and mindfulness. And 
it usually all comes back to listening, listening to both the rest of the band, but then it gets really meta, like listening to one's own intuition to feel what, what one should play or say or do. And, you know, I'd love to hear your take on the importance of listening and really how musicians and marketers alike can both become better listeners. I think that's a really good insight. Bravo. One of the things about uh, listening is it's not the same as hearing. That unlike our eyes, we really can't close our ears. You have no choice but to listen to what's being said, but you might not hear it. And by hearing it, it means, are you looking for patterns? Are you willing to uh, open the door to hearing what people have to say? So here's one of my favorite examples. You may have gotten one of those 10,000 surveys where they ask you three questions on something online. And then the fourth question is anything else? And there's a blank for you to type in whatever you want. Well, when I fill them out, and I've done this more than 30 times, I say, I don't think you're really reading this. If you are, call me or send me an email. And that has never once happened. Because they're not. They're just not. They don't want to actually know. And when we think about a business, a business has decided often, not always, but often, this is what I make. And I don't want to hear anything other than that. And a band on the road, burnt out, trying so hard, but it's a really tough slog, might not be measuring exactly what needs to be measured to truly hear what people need from them. And I don't know if you uh, know my friend Gabe and his blog, Gabe the Bass Player, but I strongly recommend it to any band person who's got uh, the insight to be listening to you because Gabe every single day posts a blog that's all about how bands can listen to what the market and the audience wants to hear. And this is Gabe, the bass player? That's what it's called, yeah. Gotcha. Seth, do you, do you have a meditation practice, Seth? It's way too sloppy to talk about. Um, <laughs> I, I try to find something in between stoicism and mindfulness, and I strongly recommend people who are skeptical about it try it for a month before they are, remain skeptical. Uh, my uh, teacher is named Pema Chadran, and Pema's work is really special. So for, for anyone out there who, who may be unfamiliar, how would you describe stoicism? It has nothing to do with being stoic. It has really bad uh, branding, really bad. Stoicism is, oh, that happened. It's raining. Now what should I do? And we don't spend any time whatsoever blaming the rain, arguing about the rain, denying the rain. It's raining. Now what should I do? Because all the time you spend on the other part is time you're getting yourself off center. And, you know, so I have done a thousand live gigs, some in front of huge numbers of people. And it was just this curse that no one would read my tech rider. And you'd get there and five minutes before you're on stage in front of 15,000 people, they just didn't do what they were supposed to do. It was enraging. But you learn in those four minutes left, getting angry at it isn't going to change anything. They still don't have this hooked up to that. Now what am I going to do? And the sooner you can shift to that perspective, the better your life gets. 
and that, that's definitely happened to probably mostly all touring musicians who do that <laughs> that long slug something goes wrong with the car whatever my next question for you seth we talked about this a little bit you know originality and authenticity you know how those can kind of be a trap um but we all have different connotations of these words and different ideas of how these have a role in the creative process people are on a pursuit of something whether it's originality authenticity inspiration these are loaded terms and, and i'd love to hear your definition of them of originality and authenticity and and how would you say these concepts are, are misunderstood well, one of the reasons you become a musician is because you want to be authentically you when you're doing the music. You're not a, a Doobie Brothers cover band. You are playing your music. And I think your audience doesn't want you to be authentic. I think your audience wants you to be consistent. And those are different things. So if you get to the show and they haven't slept in three nights and they're really in a bad mood and uh, they're having arguments with their significant others, you don't want any of that to come across in the live concert. You want the best version of this band, the best version possible. You want consistency, right? That if we discovered that Elvis Costello isn't really like the way Elvis Costello seems to be, that would probably be okay with us. Because if Elvis Costello is actually not that interesting, we don't want him to be not that interesting on stage because he's playing a role not even his real name right and i think there's a lot to be said for it not being your real name that when i show up to do my work it doesn't matter what i was doing an hour ago i am here to play the role of me consistently that's my job it's professional work that's different than if it's your hobby if it's your hobby be whoever you want whenever you want but the minute you transact with somebody else that's the deal now originality is a little different because every famous musician plays covers of their original work. They're not playing their work completely originally every time. They're reminding us of the time they did it before. And that doesn't mean it's okay for you to learn kind of blue note for note and pretend to be Miles Davis. Because in, the, in a world when we have CD players and streaming, we don't need anybody to recreate his performance of it. We have it already. And so there's this weird zone in between playing covers of yourself or covers of other people and just being a music box. And I think that in between that are the boundaries where magic can happen. When you know, you're sitting in the front row at the Blue Note and people are trading fours or you're watching Cyrilla May uh, doing improv or you go to Monday night at the Green Mill and you're watching Patricia Barber be herself in that moment. Patricia and I have argued about this because I don't think she's being authentic. I think she is trained too hard to be an amateur. She is professional in that moment, but she is also dancing on the edge, dancing with possibility, dancing with failure. That's why it's worth going to Chicago to see her live because it might not work. And if you're doing things that are always gonna work, the audience is going to figure that out soon and it's going to be sort of boring. And the last part of my rant is if you listen to the live albums that Steve Martin did at the peak of his career, they're completely unfunny. They're unlistenable because no matter what he said, the audience thought it was funny. And 
there was no magic there. And magic is what we are trying for. So you, you bring up this, this concept of magic and I want to zoom out through the lens of music and, you know, talk specifically about psychology. So music, we talk about this on the podcast regularly. It's, it, it predates so many things in culture, you know, it's tribal religious thing. And um, people there's, there's profound, not only profound healing, but just a profound experience that can be had through music. And what do you think it is about sound, about specific, you know, intervals and, and just music in general that can just be so impactful psychologically to, to the listener? I, I think that's a great question. No one's ever talked to me about this before. I think that if we talk about sight, we know that the optic nerve carries more information than any other thing in our body. And that sight dominates the way we see the world. Um, that you can watch a movie with the sound off and have a hunch as to what's going on, but you can't listen to a movie with the picture off and have any clue about what's going on. But sight is intellectual, that we label things with names when we see them. Sound, on the other hand, sound is, came before sight, that there are plenty of creatures that can hear that can't see very well. And I think that sound gets to a place where our imagination is, has an easier time living. And I think that sound is a way for a poet to get under our skin and when we combine that with the frequency and repetition of pop culture, you know, the 4,000th time you've heard Billy Joel sing that song again and again and again, you could sing it with him. And that's a different thing, right? It's not the first time, the way you're going to hear jazz for the first time. And so when all of those things combine with culture and repetition and imagination, it's, it's almost a perfect package. You couldn't imagine somebody trying to do that with smells or tastes but we can certainly do it with sound. And so then a musician going deeper down this rabbit hole, they're two of their most prime tools are tension and release. And anyone out there who's listened to Akimbo, you know, at the beginning of the episode, it's, it's yellow glasses, six guitar strings and euphoria. Boom, 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 boom. This <laughs> is a, and it's like, my question for you, Seth is, uh, enlighten us, you know, how, how can tension and release itself just be so moving? For the musician that thinks about these things in words, as opposed to just getting it in their gut, music is mostly about the spaces in between the notes. And the longer the spaces are, I'm doing that on purpose, the more likely it is that we feel that and have to lean into it. And you can't do it all the time, but you also can't play 180 beats per minute all the time. It's the relationship between the two, the tension and the release that causes it to be real. And so when the drum machine first showed up, a lot of critics said it doesn't work because it's predictable. And what happens is you have to use that as a foundation to put something on top of it that's not predictable because it's that unpredictability of it that enables a hook to be a hook. Unpredictability is like a paradox because, you know, it seems like art has to originate somewhere. So it's, how do you keep yourself guessing, Seth? 
Well, it has to rhyme. Art has to rhyme. It has to fit in a genre. If you go to the Clifford Still uh, Museum in Colorado, every Clifford Still looks like Clifford Still painted it, but it's still worth seeing the next one. And so the freshness comes in lots of very, very small spaces. So if you listen to the, the Brandenburg concertos, he's, it's just math, but each one has just enough to keep it going. So, you know, I've written 7,500 blog posts and all of them rhyme and none of them are a repeat, but there can't be more than 200 completely different ones in my genre. And that's a fair number. It took me 20 years to get to 200. But so I'm not bored listening to myself repeat myself, but I know I'm repeating myself. Seth, recently I had a, a very vulnerable conversation with a friend about the concept of, of our own mortality and, you know, eventually dying. And, you know, you've brought up stoicism. If you don't mind me asking, Seth, do you ever feel anxious or, or scared about death? I don't think I've met anyone, including people who are deep in the Tibetan tradition, who don't have some ambivalence, fear, or discomfort around death. Uh, it informs all of our lives from the time we're five years old. You know, these are crazy times we are living in. And uh, as we get older and as we see people around us get ill, it's easy to get hung up on the fact that we'd like to live forever, but I don't think we really should live forever or want to live forever deep down. And so I try to remind myself uh, that it's better to be living than thinking about dying, but I don't deny the fact that, you know, there's a clock ticking and then it's going to be done. My last question for you, Seth, you know, earlier on, I mentioned the impact that, that your works had on me personally. And, you know, I'd love to give you a moment here to directly address anyone out there listening who may be struggling with feeling a sense of purpose or direction or motivation. You know, what advice could you share with someone like this who may feel directionless or in a rut? Uh, first, thank you for feeling that because the people who don't feel that and are just mindlessly in a rut, don't believe in themselves enough to know that they could do something better. And uh, I'm not gonna reassure you because reassurance is futile. Because me saying one thing to you isn't gonna help for five minutes, never mind a, a week or a month. But I would remind you that we are what we do. And if you're not happy with what you're doing, do something else. Start right now. Do it poorly, do it poorly and then do it better. But waiting for perfect is a never ending thing. We need to, to do work that matters, as you said, and to ship that work for just a few people. Don't worry about whether it's gonna work or not, just bring it to the world and then become the kind of person who ships the work. And mm -hmm. separate from that, I wanna thank you. These have been really insightful, thoughtful questions. You clearly put a lot into it and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Seth. Thank you very much for all that you do. And yeah, for anyone out there listening, you can find Seth's blog, seths.blog. Uh, we mentioned Akimbo, definitely worth checking out. Um, and I highly recommend you check out his books. He's got The Practice, which goes deep into the creative mindset. Uh, other books I recommend of his, This is Marketing. Lynchpin is a personal favorite of mine. And then, of course, Purple Cow. And yeah, Seth, man, thank you so much for 
for your insights, for your thoughtfulness, and for all that you do. Cheers, my friend. Thanks, Cam. Keep making a ruckus. We'll see you around. You made it this far. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to our sponsors, Hemp Relief CBD, SEM Tickets, Devil Wind Brewing, and Artillery Productions. We've got links in the description below. Go check out all the awesome stuff they've got going on. And yeah, much love, everyone.